Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Losing Your Life, Finding Your Reward, with gratitude to Sierra Leone's orphans. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 28, 2011. Last week, my daughter returned home from an eight-week internship at an orphanage in Sierra Leone. I've been to Africa six times, and Megan has been twice before, so we had realistic expectations before she went. Nevertheless, her trip photos were a disturbing reminder of how many people in the majority world live today. They were also an invitation to consider this week's gospel with fresh eyes and ears. The Portuguese started trading slaves in Sierra Leone in 1462 and were soon joined by the Dutch, the French, and the British. The British colonized the country in 1808. After these 500 years of plunder and pillage, Sierra Leone gained independence in 1961. But government corruption and incompetence and the agitation of the Liberian warlord Charles Taylor then provoked a civil war that lasted from 1991 until 2001. Sierra Leone's civil war killed 50,000 people and displaced a million more. The war devastated the country's infrastructure, destroyed the economy, and traumatized ordinary citizens with rape, torture, mutilation, and rebel terror. Given this history, it's no surprise that in 2010, Sierra Leone ranked number 158 out of 169 countries on the United Nations Human Development Index. Today, about half of its people live on a dollar and 25 cents a day. In some ways, the kids at the orphanage where my daughter went are the lucky ones. And yet, the Banta Children's Village has no running water. Sporadic electricity means no refrigeration. The children eat three meals a day, but some of them still have discolored hair due to lack of protein. A loaf of bread is a luxury. It's only 50 miles from the capital of Freetown to the orphanage, but the trip takes 10 hours in a rickety puta-puta on barely passable roads. One day, a Romanian bauxite miner asked my daughter, why would you ever come to a place like this? It's a good question. Going to Sierra Leone isn't a resume builder or a career enhancer. Getting there is expensive. There are obvious health and safety risks. Sleeping under a mosquito net on a foam mattress does not encourage sweet dreams. Most unsettling of all, maybe, is you can't play with the fire of such life experiences without the fire playing with you. The Gospel for this week suggests at least one response to the miner's question. We read in Matthew 16, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. 
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. <clears throat> Those who follow Jesus pattern their life after Jesus and his self-sacrificial example. In showing us the light and love of the Father, God, resurrection life came only after persecution by religious leaders, betrayal by his closest disciples, and a gruesome execution by the Roman state. This prediction of Jesus about his divine destiny was followed by the denial of Peter. Perish the thought, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus rebuked Peter with the harshest of words. Out of my sight, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Indeed, it's disturbing how easy it is to hold the hand of the devil, all for what we think are good reasons. This week's Old Testament reading paints a different picture of God's saving power in human history. After 430 years of bondage, God liberated Israel from Egypt by the Exodus. The Exodus was a drama of political liberation in the concrete here and now, of miraculous deliverance from economic exploitation, of God's mighty acts of power in regal display. In the Exodus, God dramatically intervened to shatter the enemy, work wonders, and break the powers of bondage. And so the Exodus story echoes throughout the Bible as a reminder of God's power to save and is celebrated at Passover today by Jews. Does God still perform such mighty acts of miraculous powers? Believers in places like Sierra Leone would say I'm crazy even to ask such a question, and they're probably right. And so I pray such big prayers every day. Like Moses in Numbers 14, 17, I beg God, let the power of the Lord be great. With Isaiah 64, I cajole God to come down and perform awesome things we did not expect. And with Paul in Ephesians 3.20, I pray for God to do exceedingly, exceeding abundantly beyond all that I ask or even imagine. Nonetheless, the alternate reading in Jeremiah takes us back to the gospel and reminds us that God works in exile as well as in exodus and that he doesn't always perform mighty acts of miracles. Jeremiah was a protagonist in Israel's exile to Babylon. Whereas Moses confronted Egypt, confronted enemy Egypt, Jeremiah confronted his own nation about their destiny with disaster. To the prophets, priests, and kings of Judah, Jeremiah preached an unpatriotic, seditious, and judgmental message. Stop giving our people reckless lies and false hopes. Stop betraying them with your delusional messages of comfort and hope. National disaster is just around the corner. 
Deportation to pagan Babylon was unthinkable, beyond comprehension. What had happened? Where were God's mighty acts of deliverance? Was not Israel God's inviolable and elect people? How could he relinquish them to a pagan enemy? Exile to Babylon began a period of subjugation, servitude, banishment, and captivity. It signaled failure, isolation, loneliness, and punishment. Certainly, it meant despair. But exile was just as much a place of redemption as Exodus. We read in Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So God is present in Exodus, but equally present in exile. For his 40 years of faithfulness to God's call, Jeremiah was beaten, threatened with death, imprisoned, thrown down a well, and derided as an unpatriotic traitor. Almost no one listened to him. He was an isolated man of reproach among his own people. Early believers thus often viewed Jeremiah as a Christ figure. In dying to self, we live to God and live for others. In losing our lives, we find them. True resurrection follows real death. Whether in exodus or exile, whether in Sierra Leone or London, God promises his presence. When Moses doubted his deepest self, God assured him in Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. To Jeremiah, he promised the exact same thing in Jeremiah 1.8, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And to his disciples in this week's gospel, Jesus promised, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each people, each person, according to what he has done. For books this week, I review a title called Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison, a Biography. The author of the book is Martin Marty. Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2011, 275 pages. This is a book about a book, which was never a book in the first place, really, but rather a collection of letters, sermons, poems, and reflections by a German pastor written from his 10-foot by 7-foot prison cell 92, where he was incarcerated for his role in a plot to assassinate Hitler. But from that cramped space designed to kill creativity and bury hope, there issued letters and papers that became the substance of one of the great testimonial books of the 20th century. Some of Bonhoeffer's papers were smuggled out of prison, Others made it through the censors as personal letters to his fiancée. Some were buried in gardens by family and friends. 
A few were saved by Nazi guards loyal to Bonhoeffer, and still others were hidden in roof beams. Some papers were lost, some were burned to protect the identity of people. After two years of imprisonment, Bonhoeffer was hanged on April the 9th, 1945, only a month before the war ended. In the ensuing years, the papers were collected, organized, and edited by Eberhard Bethke, Bonhoeffer's best friend and eventual biographer. Today, the 2010 critical edition of Letters and Papers runs to 800 pages and has been translated into at least 20 languages. The German title of the original 1951 edition was called Resistance and Submission. Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, I have often wondered here where we are to draw the line between necessary resistance to fate and equally necessary submission. For many readers, Letters and Papers is thus a remarkably courageous witness to the gospel. For many others, though, there's a sharp disagreement about how to interpret Bonhoeffer's explicitly re theological reflections. His earlier letters are characterized by a classical Lutheran piety, whereas later papers contain what even Bethke admits are explosive questions. What is Christianity, and who is Christ for us today? What did Bonhoeffer mean by a world come of age? Jesus as a man for others, and a religionless Christianity. Martin Marty traces the widely differing interpretations of these complex questions from communist atheists in East Germany and radical death of God theologian in Britain and the United States to Catholic, Evangelical, African, South American, and Asian thinkers. This volume is one of the first in a series of 18 so-called biographies of great religious books by Princeton University Press. It's called The Lives of Great Religious Books and is a series of short volumes that recount the complex and fascinating histories of important religious texts from around the world. The volumes pair leading experts with classic texts and are written for a general audience. In a previous review here in Journey with Jesus, I reviewed Augustine's Confessions by Gary Wills. The author of the book, Martin Marty. The title, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. For film this week, we travel to Africa and the West African country of Senegal. The title of the film is Mulade. Mulade is a brave film that challenges a barbaric tradition that's still practiced on two million girls a year, according to Amnesty International. Female genital mutilation. The Senegalese writer and director Usmane Sembe, born in 1923, known to some as the father of African cinema, situates his film in a rural Muslim village where authoritarian male elders rule by decree. A very brave woman known Kole offers Mulade, 
that is protection or sanctuary to four young girls who have fled the rite of so-called purification. She has, after all, protected her own daughter, Amasatu, from mutilation. Two other young girls commit suicide to avoid cutting. Kole's courageous act disrupts not only her own marriage, but the entire village, and she pays a steep price. Sembene does not let the film end with easy answers, but the explicitly feminist message of the movie is clear. End this horrendous cultural practice. Roger Ebert called this the best film at Cannes in 2004. And for the record, both the World Health Organization and the United Nations have called for the end of female genital mutilation. The film is in the Jula dialect and some French, with English subtitles. I got the film on Netflix. The title, Moulade, from Senegal. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Kate Farrell, born in 1946. It's from her book called Times River. The title of the poem is called Poem for Dan's Departure. So much do we love talking to people we love about ideas we love, that thinking becomes a conversation with people we love about ideas we love. Being your mother became a conversation where your quiet ideas furthered the attachment first fastened in the far configurations of destiny. I am honored that the universe loaned your childhood to me, adding such a bright star to the constellation of conversations that I am becoming. For however far apart we are, your considerate voice stays with me enlightening my thinking. I wish I could give you a small package of whatever I know that is worth knowing to take with you wherever you go. I wish you would call me from time to time and tell the part of me that is you where your part of the conversation is going. The title of the poem, Poem for Dan's Departure, by Kate Farrell. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 28th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.